Welcome to Dan Malloy's Personal Power Podcast. Get ready to up your communication and commitment game. Hear from those who have succeeded using Dan's program. And now, here's Dan Malloy. Good afternoon, Uncle Dan here. Live from, uh, well, actually recorded. <laughs> recorded live. Some of this, I'm alive anyway. <laughs> and I'm, I'm thrilled to have with me today an Olympian, uh, Joe Malloy. And uh, uh, let me just set this up a little bit. Uh, I got involved in, in the sport of triathlon at the age of 55. So this is a long time ago. And um, uh, all of a sudden, this guy Joe Malloy starts popping up on the screen, and you see him in races. And I, you know, I follow him around uh, all the, the local races that we used to do in the day. You know, the Philadelphia Triathlon, and you look at the results, and you see who starts creeping up the leaderboard. And all of a sudden, Joe is at the top of the heap. And um, I thought it was very, very funny, actually. And many times, Joe, I'll just share this with you that. I can't tell you how many people came up to me at races and said, are, are you Joe, Joe Malloy? I said, I said, well, I, that's maybe it's a, it's a, a, you know, a, a compliment to me that you think <laughs> I'm that old. But it could be a, a, an insult to Joe because, you know, he's a young guy and I'm an old guy. <laughs> anyway. Brothers. Brothers, right. I, the other thing is, are you his father? I got that sometimes, too. That's more like it. Or maybe are you his grandfather? That could have been it, too. Anyway, I'm thrilled to be here with an Olympian. Uh, Joe, why don't you share with us? What, what, you, you competed in the, uh, in the 2016 Olympics, correct? Yeah, and first off, Dan, thanks for having me. Um, You're welcome, a, It's buddy. a kind of privilege to be able to sit down and chat with you this afternoon. Um, I, did, I did compete in the 2016 Olympics down in Rio. I finished 23rd, um, and which is, it's bittersweet. I, I, I know it's one of the topics you, you wanted to delve into, but um, I think, you know, I think the nature of a career in athletics is, you know, it's, it's a lot of highs and it's a lot of lows. And for Olympic athletes, you, you only get so many opportunities, which is, it's part of the beauty of the Olympic movement. Um, but I, so I finished 23rd in Rio it's obviously not a gold medal like many athletes to dream of going to the Olympics imagine, but, um, but it's a result I'm proud of and oh, you should one be. of many good results I've had over the course of my career. So how long, how long did you compete in, in that race? No, in many, in year, in years, life? I'm just in, in terms of how long, I mean, you know, you've been a competitor back in college and for forever, but I mean, ter in terms of uh, uh, triathlon, Let's just say, how many years did you compete triathlon? So tr triathlon's a, a sport I picked up after I graduated from Boston College in 2008. Mm -hmm. I, I was a collegiate swimmer. And after I graduated, I maybe made it one week without knowing when my next competition was. And then I started to hunger for something. And I found a a triathlon that was near my hometown back in South Jersey on, I still remember it was June 1st, 2008. And it was kind of like a local community race. And that, that was what I put on my calendar. It was a week after we finished senior week up in Boston. So I wasn't in my best form, but it was, you know, I, as an athlete, I just was hungry to continue chasing competition. Yes. And what was it about 
triathlon. So you did your first triathlon in 2008. It's probably around the time I did my first one, too. I'm trying to remember. It might have been 2007, thereabouts. That would, uh, no, probably 2006, whatever, sometime around there. But what was it about the, the, the first event that had you hooked? That's a good question. Um, I think it was, it, it was a mixed bag for me, that first race. It was, I had a great swim, obviously. I was coming right. off of a collegiate sure. swim career. And, um, and then on the bike, I just saw these guys whiz past me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was in probably, I, I was first out of the water by probably a minute in the sprint triathlon. And I was probably the fourth guy to sit onto my bike. You know, like, there was so much that went wrong. And, and I think it was that, that kind of it, like in triathlon, I, I sort of saw pretty quickly. It was this sport where I could have high highs and low lows, like really quickly one after another. And I just saw all this opportunity to improve. And, um, and then after the race, it was, it was a neat community uh, that people yes. wanted to hang out and chat. Yes. It was as a, I was coming off of college where a lot of days I wouldn't wake up until 10 a.m. And, um, and then there I was finished this triathlon before eight in the morning and it felt great. Right. So, so, so there were a lot of small wins in the day and then there were these losses that I felt like I could fix. And, and all of a sudden I, I kind of became curious to see, to see what I could do if I signed up for another one. Yeah, and then and you get into it. I mean, it's, it's it is an interesting sport because you have to learn. Well, in your case, you you already were an expert swimmer, but you have to learn three. I had to learn three sports: swimming, biking, and and well, I was a runner for many years. But so you have to delve into that. And then there's all the the transitions and everything, and just lots of equipment issues. And then cycling is a whole big world. You know, you made me you made me laugh because I remember the first. Race I did was uh, there in uh, along the Jersey coast somewhere. I think it might have been down in Asbury Park, and I, I never forget this. It was it was a sprint, and it was in May, and the water temperature was fifty two degrees. It was cold, and I remember jumping in, and I said, "Oh my god!" And I got out, and I couldn't even I couldn't couldn't feel my feet or my hands. Everything was numb, and when I got on the bike to ride, I I had bought I hadn't had a bike in like forever, but I bought a steel. A steel bike. It weighed about forty pounds, <laughs> and I remember seeing these 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 women, these old women passing me like I was standing still on the bike. It was just comical, absolutely comical. When tell me about here's what I'm also interested in. You know, it's like my program I call the language of commitment, and you know I teach that all about language and communication, and and I'm certain that. The results that we have in our lives are, are tied to the conversations we have, that we have ourselves, but also the conversations that are passed down to us. So I'm, I'm very curious as to you become an Olympian, and I know that you won a world title too in, the, uh, in that relay race, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where, did you, where did the conversation start for you about you becoming an a, 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 an elite athlete. I'm curious how that starts. And again, from this perspective, that we can help other people like see perhaps if they're not having these conversations at home, if people aren't having them with them, how can they include these conversations in their lives? You know? 
Dan, I think I think that's a great question, and it's a great it's a great problem to try and fix because I think I think there's a lot of misconception around commitment. Uh, it, it's it's one of the things that's out there, and it's talked about an awful lot, but I, I think it's misunderstood because my experience with commitment. Um, I mean, I was a world class athlete. Um, you know, winning a world title, ranked top in the country. And, um, and people looked at me and they said, Oh, my gosh, how are you so committed? And, and I, I think if I could share from my experience, it's, it's, it's not a decision, it's not commitment isn't a switch that you can just flip on. Um, it's, for me, it was a step by step process. And, and it's, it's commitment, really, it, it only looks really impressive from looking back when, when you're, when you're looking back on, you know, 10 years of decisions, mm -hmm. but in the moment commitment is just doing like the next best thing. And it's, it, it starts with where you are right at that moment. And, and then kind of just asks you to kind of to, if, if you want this big shiny object, whatever it is, for me, it was the Olympic games. And, um, and larger than the Olympic Games, what, what the Olympic Games represented to me was it was this idea of striving to see, see what was inside of me to fulfill my potential as an athlete. Mm -hmm. And um, so that, that was my greater cause. The Olympics were just kind of the, re the manifestation of that in an event. And, and it was when I started triathlon, it was, yeah, I, like it, I thought it'd be a dream come true to compete at the Olympic games and represent my family and my country. Yes. But, but it, it, that wasn't the be all and end all. It, it, it starts with saying, you know what, I'd rather get up and have a great bike ride than stay out at the bar with my friends for another round of drinks. And then all of a sudden you, you decide, you know what, I really like this TV show, but you know, I know I've got to pull myself off this sofa and get out for my third workout of the day. And then, right. and then these decisions that we start to make, they become habits and, and we, that's habits are sort of our way of automating commitment. Um, and, and by that, I mean, it, it takes the work out of the decision because we, we don't think all of a sudden we start making these actions sort of automatic mm -hmm. that, lead us closer to that that dream goal that big shiny object but um but it's not top of mind all the time it's just all of no. a sudden it becomes what we do and who we are but you you and, you and then go ahead progression becomes doing the next best thing do whatever's right in front of you doing that next thing and then in hindsight it all looks like commitment well i here's how i would interpret that what what you're talking about how i look at it I don't disagree. I mean, it's a bunch of you talk about the decisions. There's, I think, and tell me if this resonates with you. There's one decision you had to make. One decision at one point in time that you were going to go for it, and 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 do whatever you could do to make the Olympic team. There had to be that decision had to be made. In my opinion. Is that accurate or not accurate for you? So, so I I, I would say I, I I don't disagree with that, but. But it's, I, I guess my counter would be for, for me, and I, I can only speak from my experience, it, there wasn't just one moment, it was, it was a, a continual, it was a continuous process, because, it, you know, every athlete on the starting line of an Olympic Games, every athlete there knows 
he's done, he or she has done, you know, some things as best they can. Every athlete there also has these doubts in their mind, even at the highest level of sport that they know, you know, I could have been better here. I could have been better here because you don't get to that place in anything without constantly training your mind to look at where there's opportunities to improve. So, so, and, and that's, that's the kind of cruel trick that even at the top, there's a lot of opportunity to continue improving. To continue yeah. You see, you that. notice, you notice the little, the little things that you missed, you know, that, <laughs> that, right. oh, if so, only, so, if I only I had done the transition just 10 seconds faster. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and to the outside looking in, you know, it's, it's, it's totally impressive, but it, it, I, there was a, there's a saying that I, I kind of related to as an athlete, it was, um, it, you know, to the casual observer, they notice like a great work of art and they see the picture, but a great artist noticed the brushstrokes. Yeah, that's, that, that's a good point. Yes. That's the level of detail that elite athletes and, and I would argue elites in any profession or um, undertaking, that's, that's the kind of granularity that they get into. Yes. Uh, in, in order to achieve whatever, whatever they're trying to achieve. Yes. So, um, but, but it, to, it, to your point, if there was a, a moment where I made that decision, I can remember in 2010, I competed at the U S national championships. Right. I finished 33rd, uh, 33rd American guy, um, which on one hand it's decent, but it's nothing that's indicative of somebody who's going to be on the Olympic team in six years. Right. And, um, and I remember I finished the race. I was very disappointed and I thought I maybe on a good day could have been top 10. Right. Uh, and I remember my dad asked me, he's like, are these guys that much better than you? And I said, I remember saying to myself and to him, I said, you know, I'm not sure they're that much better, but I know I'm not doing everything I can to figure it out. Right. There you go. Um, and, and that was the moment where I decided, you know what, I, I've got to be more serious about this. I've got to start optimizing more of my decisions for better results in triathlon. Was that Tuscaloosa or was that um, up, in, up in Vermont? That was actually in between. It was up in Buffalo. There were two years where we had the elite national championships. In oh, 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 the elite national. Because I remember I, I did Tuscaloosa. I think that was 2009, uh, perhaps. And then it and went up to Burlington. Nine and 10. So maybe it was 2011 that I had that, that race in Buffalo. Yeah, I don't, I don't never raced in Buffalo. But um, yeah, interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, but I'm, it, it's such a challenging sport, you know. Um, to, to tie it all, to put it all together. If you were to look back on your, on your, your career, which spanned like, uh, you know, eight, 10 years, I mean, as a really, as a, I'm looking at how many perfect races did you have? None. <laughs> did yeah, it? Like, <laughs> I mean, we talk. Uh, magical. So Come on. There had to be some magical race that you had somewhere along the way where everything just freaking worked. <laughs> Oh, and you oh, left. Dan, come on. You know as well as I do, it's never everything. Um, in triathlon, in Olympic distance triathlon, we're talking an hour, 40-some minutes. For you. <laughs> and and, and the, so, so that's at the top of the game. I, 
there's never been an hour and 40 minutes of chunk of time in my life that's gone absolutely perfectly. Really? You haven't um, had that and, magical, magical race where, where things just, you know, you, the transitions worked and you felt great in the water and you got out and boom and everything just worked and you finished. You've, you know, you just were totally satisfied at the end of the race. That never happened? No. No, <laughs> I mean, it, 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 like, I mean, I, and don't get me wrong. I've I've been satisfied at the end of races, and it, it, it like felt good about a performance. Maybe that's but, maybe that's why you made the Olympics, and I wait, and I waited until fifty five to even decide to become an an elite athlete. You know, that's funny. Yeah, I'm curious now. Did you have a perfect race? Well, I I think if I look back, I did thirteen seasons, right, and 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 I won a lot of races in my age group. Over the years, I was blessed because I was, I was a, a decent swimmer and a decent cyclist and a decent runner. But you know, at that level, as an age grouper, you most people have some serious flaws in their racing. You know, they, they're not good at this or not good. At, so I was kind of mediocre at everything. But it, I did, I did was able. I had a very similar experience to you. I wanted to make Team USA, and I I tried four times. I didn't make it. And it was very discouraging. But each time I went back, I was so committed to doing that that I went back each time after each season. I was like depressed for like a month after <laughs> not accomplishing my goal mm -hmm. and then came back and I said, all right, let's regroup. I spoke with my coaches, my swim coach I, I, and regrouped and got a new plan, got a new tri coach. And we tried some new things, you know, and eventually I made it. And then I went off to my first world championship in Beijing in 2011. And uh, if there was a, I finished in sixth place. And if I had a, f a flawless race, you know, for me, was I the best? No. But for me, that was as flawless as I could have done. I mean, everything worked. And, uh, and I was totally satisfied. And uh, it was just really an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. For you know, for for a guy that started at the age of fifty-five, you know, it was really cool. You don't need to qualify that, Dan. That I I think the beauty of the beauty of sport is you know it's when we judge it relative others, it's you know it's it it's becomes like harder to compete as you get older. But but when when you kind of judge it by a different criterion, you start looking at what what does this mean to me. And it, this is like the realization of a lot of work and a lot, a lot of early mornings, late nights, um, and choices that come together in a performance like that. Like that, that's a joy that now that I'm kind of on the other side of all in elite performance, there's other things in my life now that, that weren't there when I was uh, just kind of singularly focused on triathlon. I start to appreciate that, that there's, there's a spot for sport in life and and that spot might change for different people. It's it's different for for people, and it changes depending on what stage of life we're in. Right. But but, but that feeling, that fulfillment that comes from the accomplishment, it, it, like you you don't have to qualify that. Yeah. No. I, I anyway. Yeah. For me, it was always I had this vision in my head of myself as an elite athlete. But I I always I let other things get in the way. I let the party lifestyle get in the way as a young man. You know and I smoked for 10 years of my life and uh, I drank way too much. And then finally I woke up and just said, if I'm going to do this, it has to be now. And uh, that's what I mean, like a decision, you know. So I made the decision and I was uh, really blessed. 
And now it set off a whole bunch of other things. Here I am talking with you. I never would have this opportunity to talk with an Olympic athlete. I had dinner. I had dinner once with Gwen Jorgensen. That was a trip. She was uh, she was an amazing lady, and uh, it was a group of us out to dinner in New York City, and uh, it was uh, just a thrill. And she's such a doll. That sounds you incredible. Know. Didn't you race with her in the uh, in that relay? I did. So I think the relay you're talking about, it's the 2016 Mixed Relay World Championship. Yes, 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 yes. Thrilling. Yeah, so, so, um, so Gwen was, it's, it's a really neat event for anybody listening who doesn't know what the Mixed Relay is. It's, it's a chance for men and women to compete together in a single event. Um, most, most relays out there in, in Olympic sport, it's, it's all male relays or all female relays. Uh, in triathlon, our relays together, it's uh, combined men and women. And um, the order is female, male, female, male. So, so you're constantly handing off uh, to another gender and, um, and you compete as a country, as a team. And uh, Gwen was our leadoff leg that year at the World Championships. And it was her last race before Rio. It was also my last race before the Olympic Games. And I actually remember the morning we woke up, uh, Gwen texted me and she said, I really need this today. And um, so Gwen went out and got a lead for our team and we never let it up. Well, she's but, a miraculous. Uh, it, it, it was nothing like yeah. setting the pressure. You get a, a, uh, a text message from the odds on Olympic favorite in her last race before the games. And she's telling you she needs this. <laughs> <laughs> mentally right mentally she needs it mm -hmm. physically was that where where was that race held was that in Cozumel uh that one was in Hamburg Hamburg Germany oh okay mm -hmm. all right was the that... world championships that year were in Cozumel yeah yeah I, I remember that I, I raced there and it was uh it was brutal conditions and that was the race where uh, uh Johnny Brownlee was coming around the corner he was ahead he had a big lead and yeah, he he, he he crashed out because of the temperature and the, the heat and humidity was god awful, and um, it was just crazy. But so when when you were a, a a kid, what types of conversations did your folks have with you about athletics and about excelling in mm -hmm. athletics? Yeah, so in life in um, general, to it's it's interesting, and I think I think. The, parent, the conversations I had with my parents were very formative in, in making, in helping sport become such a huge part of my life. Um, they, both my mom and my dad were kind of familiar with athletics, but they, you know, they, they were, um, they both worked in schools. My mom uh, was a school nurse. My dad was a middle school teacher. Um, so they had a lot of experience with developing like kids that age and, and they always kept sport as something that was fun for us. And, um, it, it was, it was never, they really never mentioned like, you, you know, you have to win, you have to get out there and beat everybody else. Um, wh where they really, uh, put their focus was on encouraging us to just always show up. Like a big thing for my dad was you, you'd never miss practice. You never miss a day of practice. You always show up. And, um, and then with I, I, my mom, it was, she was just happy. She saw the way we pushed ourselves, both my brother and I, and she was just always happy. We, we didn't, you know, poop ourselves out or, or like, kind of really be careful. I can, I can hear like my mom said, be careful, be careful. Right. Right. Take it easy. Yeah. So, Don't push too hard. 
<laughs> so she was always just happy we came back safe. Um, and my dad just always wanted us to work hard and show up. So, so they were very, I would say um, for, for the listeners, they were very processed focused. Uh, it, it was never based on results. And, and they always encouraged us to seek out competition. Uh, it was, you know, if we were the biggest fish in the pond, then it, they, they took us to a bigger pond. Oh, really? Where That's pond, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we were from a really small town in South Jersey and, and both my brother and I, we were very good athletes uh, coming up and at where, whenever we were the best athlete around that they said, okay, time to get up to the next level. Like, let's really, that's great. Can beat you. Um, because they, they'd always remind us, you know, it's a bigger world out there. You got to get out there. Yeah, that's fabulous. You know, Joe, I want to take a little bit of a break right now. And, um, and then when we come back, we'll, we'll do a wrap up. I'm having a great time chatting with you, but we could, I think that you and I could go on and talk for a couple more hours <laughs> about, about competition, athletics, uh, commitment and everything else. So let's just take a quick uh, two-minute break, and we'll be right back, and we'll wrap it up with uh, with Olympian Joe Malloy. You got it, Dan. Thanks. Malloy Sales Development turns companies into commitment-based operations and their employees into commitment-based people because commitment for human beings is the foundation for everything. And in business, it's mission critical. Because the only time commerce happens in any company is when commitments are exchanged internally among employees and externally with customers and vendors. Visit us at www.malloysales.com. Okay, we're back again, and I want to wrap up a, a few thoughts here with my new friend, Joe Malloy, uh, who's a member of the Team USA and the Olympic team in uh, uh, 2016 uh, Olympic, you know, triathlon team, and I, I, I want to just two two things. One, I appreciate what you've accomplished. I appreciate you being here, and I want to leave you with this thought, because I know you're out trying to make a difference for other people. Correct in your life. I, I hope we all are. Well, I mean, I, I know you're doing that, and aren't you? In, tell me what your role is in, in now with USAT. Yeah, so so my role with USAT, um, it, it's I I I, I kind of wear a couple of different hats, but my primary role with USAT is their collegiate recruitment coordinator, um, which means I basically I, I try and help kids get into the sport who maybe have the have the kind of they've got the hardware but they need the the skills um, to to kind of learn how to be successful in triathlon. So. So I go out and I talk to maybe a hundred or so kids a year, and um, and out of that group, you know, I, I sort of view my responsibility as trying to help them through this phase of their life from twenty to twenty-five. Mm -hmm. and, and for some of them, they're going to decide that sports going to be a big part of that, mm -hmm. and and those are the ones I end up mentoring and helping get into get into elite triathlon. Um, but that's not the best choice for all of them. And for those who, who have other priorities or other values or want to do something else, then I, I definitely wish them well. Um, but, but yeah, so I end up working with a handful of, uh, of young athletes and, um, kind of help them figure out triathlon, which is a pretty big cookie to bite. You know, you don't get it all in one, 
if no. you go. Somebody told me once it takes 10 years to become an elite triathlete, to, be, to, to get competent at the sport. And I, I agree. <laughs> There's a lot to learn. But here's the thing I want to leave you with, Joe, because you are, uh, you know, a, 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 a such a, you know, like a national and uh, even you got a, 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 a platform to speak with, right? When you talk with people, that in in life, that we human beings can can articulate and declare whatever we want to have happen, and that's where I was going when I was asking you these questions early on. You know, at what point did you? Decide what, what point did you make a decision that you were going to become who you became? And my, my, my claim is that it happens in language. It happens in the communication that we have internally in our own head and that we have with other people. And one of the cool things about it is that someone in your position can declare to other people that have the talent, you can declare a future for them. You can look at some, somebody in the eye and say, look, young man, you can become... You, you, you have the tools. You have the tools to become an elite athlete or you can do or to do whatever you want to do in your life. And I, in my own life, I, I was very blessed to have uh, some teachers that taught me about language and communication. But mo what I find is that most people know how to speak, know how to write, obviously, but don't know how to invent what they want to accomplish. And I think, I think you were clearly blessed by having parents and coaches and teachers along the way that helped, helped you get to where you, where you are today. You know, and I, and, and, you know, I, I'd love to you know, have maybe have more discussions with you about how, the, how language fits in with that whole, that whole piece of the puzzle, if you will. Yeah, Dan. So I, I, I love that concept. I was a college English major. So language has been something that I, you know, I've studied as a student and experienced firsthand the power that it has. Yes. Um, both, both with kind of the way we, we interact with others, but also um, to your point, the conversations that happen in our minds, because our, our, our minds kind of run all the time. Yes. And, um, and as an athlete, you learn, you, you learn that, uh, Sometimes the conversations have to come from the inside out, meaning it, it has to be something that you tell yourself. And sometimes the conversations have to come from the outside in. All right. Meaning there you go. You, you put yourself in an environment where people are going to hold you accountable. Yes. And sometimes it's a conversation you don't want to have. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, what my, my coach in the lead up to the Olympics, you know, I, I chose him because he was, I, I, would, I would say, a, a teller of hard truths. And, you know, I, I, if I'm the, the optimistic, yes, I can do this, I've got this guy, um, I knew as a coach, I needed somebody who was going to call me on that and say, uh, no, you can't, you, if you're going to do that, you need to do this, you need to do this, this and this. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think, I think having, understanding the conversations that we need to have to move us forward, um, I, I, I think they're very important. And, um, and to understand that the, the conversations we have, they play our, on another important piece of the puzzle, which is our emotions. Um, so we have all these thoughts that form the conversations, but they, they trigger emotions in all of us and emotions are powerful motivators. Mm -hmm. um, so as an athlete, I think um, an exercise I, I take with the athletes I coach is it's, it's always uh, understanding, understanding what emotions 
trigger the performance that you're trying to create and um and and uh, you know understanding the place for them but but yeah i i'm curious to hear more of your experience with words and language and, and how it creates commitment this is another whole show joe i think we have to get back back together on this because we're out of time now <laughs> like i said we could go on for hours you know i've been studying language and communication for 40 years and i've i've woven my what i've learned into a program that I, I teach inside companies, you know, and I, I, I want to take what you've figured out and what I've figured out, and I boil that down into, into a whole training program I teach. I start with salespeople typically because most companies want to improve sales. Uh, but then we, after we get done with the salespeople, we work with other people in operations and everything, and it's, uh, it's based on, the, you know, just like all your results are tied to the conversations you have Right with yourself and other people, same thing in a company. You know, the the, the CEO and the owner operators of, of businesses study all their their financials and their KPIs and their you know their performance metrics and everything. And my claim is that all those numbers represents moment in time when the employees were communicating, either internally or externally. So until you understand the language, that you don't un <laughs> the numbers don't mean that much. You know, they mean what they mean. It's like we, we sold, you know, we had $80 million in sales last year. Okay, but um, what, what if you realized that the employees were only operating at 50% of their efficiency because they didn't know how to do certain things with language? Anyway, that's where we, we measure it, you know. So it's interesting how do athletes talk? You know, how do business people speak? You know, and, that, and then if you understand how to assess that, then you can, you can make other types of projections or put corrections in. You know, so. Yeah, so. I, would, I would say there's language and there's truth. And, and what, what we accept as truth isn't, you know, it's, it's some of the language. Um, I'll speak for your experiences with the business side, but my experience with athletics, it's, um, you know, you can, you can show up to a race. And as an athlete, you might have experienced this. You look around and you see, guys who are really cut and ripped and all and looking very strong and you might have a conversation in your mind that's wow they look good you know they're this and you start feeling these things about yourself but um the the words that come and go into our head whether it's advice from others things we tell ourselves it's always a decision that we have inside and this is our power yeah and, i agree i always tell to accept yes. that as truth or not yeah, so I, I always tell people in my training that the assessments that you make determine the quality of your life. So, so you look out, uh, you wake up in the morning, you open your eyes, and all you can do as a human being is you can move your body and you can communicate. And one of the key communications is the internal assessments that you make of the world. You look out your eyes, there's no meaning out there in the world. No meaning at all. So we ascribe meaning to everything. Mm -hmm. As an athlete, you ascribe. So you show up at the race and you look out, and I've gone through that. That's why I always like to show up at the race lean and mean. <laughs> even, even when I was in my 60s, you want to look fit. That's, half, that's a big part of the battle, you know. And then you develop a reputation because you are fit, and you know the story. And, uh, but it's those, 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 the, the way you look at the world determines, literally determines the quality of your life. And why don't we leave it there? Because we could, you and I, I think we could go on for a long <laughs> and talk about this. 
and, and I never get home for dinner. Well, I agree with you. It's been a pleasure being on with you. Thank you for the opportunity to chat. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate it. And I look forward. We'll do this again. And I'd, I'd like to continue this conversation about language and about uh, inventing, inventing the future in how we communicate. How does that sound? Pleasure, Dan. All righty. Be good, Joe. Thank you so much. Likewise. So that was a great uh, discussion with my new friend, Joe Malloy. No relation. Fabulous a uh, triathlete, athlete, represented the United States in the, in the Olympics in 2016. And, and Billy, my producer and friend, just said, Dan, why don't you say a few things about 9-11? And uh, I'll just share this with everybody. Uh, on uh, September 10th, I had flown out to Pennsylvania, to Pittsburgh, and I was in the Pittsburgh airport, um, I had just picked up my rental car, and I was going out for a day. I had uh, was a partner in a company. We had 15 stores in uh, Pittsburgh. And uh, so I was going to go visit the stores, and it's around 8 o'clock, and I'm watching the news, doing emails and stuff. And I, call, I look on the news, and I see the trade towers on fire. And then I called Doreen and, <clears throat> and told her, check, pull it, turn on the TV because the Trade towers are on fire, and uh, then all of a sudden, as I'm talking with her, watching, I said, well, what, what just happened, Doreen? What, did you see that? And we actually witnessed the second plane hitting the other tower. Uh, and then, uh, then shortly thereafter, another plane, that's when the plane went down in Shanksville, you know, which was only you know, 60, 70 miles from where I was at the time. So I was very fortunate I had a uh, rental car and uh, so that kind of cut my trip short. I wasn't going to hang out in in the market and do business. It was, this was we were at war, and so I drove home. And I'll I'll never forget uh, driving into New Jersey. And I got to a place in by the Meadowlands where I go up on this high on this overpass, and I could look straight out at where the trade towers used to be. Anybody that's taken that trip along Route Three, you know what I'm talking about. And all, all I saw was a big plume of smoke. And I said, well, holy crap, this really did happen, didn't it? And it's, it, it really hit home. And uh, that afternoon, then I went down to, um, and sat down right in Hoboken on uh, Pier 1, if you know the south end of Hoboken, the pier that goes right out into the water. And I was only a, a mile from where, the, two miles from where the trade towers were. And there had to be a thousand people down there, just nobody, nobody saying anything. Just looking. Anyway, I think the thing that I'm left with now is that how fragile, how fragile what we have is. And that it's fragile from that perspective. There's people out there, there's real evil in the world that wants to destroy what we have. Real evil, not make-believe evil. And it even exists inside this country. You see it now. As you turn on the news, if, if the news is willing to report it, you can see that there is evil in this country and they want to destroy what we have, which is a, you know, a, a beautiful thing. Just go read the Declaration of Independence and you'll see that's what started this country. It's a conversation. This country is a conversation. And the country is a network of commitments of committed people that are committed to that conversation. That's it. 
And, and, and so you've got, you've got a lot of people out there right now at this time in history that want to destroy us from within. And, and I implore people that listen to this not to let that happen and do the right thing when it comes to voting this time around. <laughs>